This is a Ward Scott Files advisory. The Ward Scott Files podcast may contain material not suited for people who are easily offended. Trust us on this. This show contains adult information and opinions. Please protect small children, sensitive pets, fragile houseplants, and liberal relatives. Thank you. That warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. <laughs> Help me! Help! Help! Good morning, good morning. Professor Ward Scott here in the manly Warthog Man Cave, by golly. Inside the Melon Law Studio, inside the piney woods of North Central Florida, God's country. Nolan Law, 50 years of experience, won't back down. The only official law firm partner, University of Florida, and protected by crime prevention, cpss.net, 24-7, 365. Check out the mugshots and go over and follow us on Rumble. Uh, right now, you are maybe accustomed to seeing our shows also posted on wardscottfiles.com. Right now, we've got a little delay, apparently, in getting them from Rumble over to the website. Hopefully we'll get that straightened out uh, before too long. But meanwhile, if you uh, tune in a little bit later, you want to see it, Rumble has it. I've been checking it. And also follow us. It helps us build a rapport with Rumble. And there's much going on now in the world of free speech, if you will. Uh, the uh, one fellow who now has changed his name, yay, I think he calls himself wants to buy parlor. Uh, so there's a lot of movement and shuffling around to try to free up some conversation that is not anything more than the public debate in the public forum. Uh, so we'll see how that works out. But we have been victims of that, as you know, the heavy-handed, onerous opinion of the tech people who have community standards they don't define except that generally they are uh, protests against anything that challenges the conventional acceptable political narrative that they endorse. So that's basically where we are with that. And so I do would like for you, let me just get myself going here. Uh, good morning, Jim Murphy, Ray Stern, uh, some of you all. Um, 38 degrees in Atlanta, man, Ken, I'm gonna be covering that at the weather at the halftime here. It is going to be a little chilly here soon. And uh, I'll save that uh, story till the weather report. Well, I just got a little bit of a football follow-up for you. You know, we talked yesterday about uh, Tennessee throwing their goalposts in the river and all this and that one another. But now the SEC has come along and, of course, fined them $100,000 uh, for uh, misbehaving. And their athletic director, Danny White, seems to say it was all worth it. And they've posted a a uh, link um, that is soliciting funds to pay that $100,000 as if these athletic departments don't have enough money slopping around all over the place already. It's um, so interesting how the culture has fanatically endorsed the sport. Of course, we know what is at the center of it. It's the supreme violence of collisions and all that that go on in this activity. So it's not going to change. It takes you all back to Roman gladiator days, I'm sure. And um, 
human nature doesn't really ever change. That's why it's called human nature, sometimes referred to as the human condition. So there is a fine, which apparently Tennessee is gleefully paying. Um, you know, just by comparison here, talk a moment about the Florida stadium, the stadium itself is antiquated so badly in terms of the modern day kind of amenities fans have come to expect. Uh, our parking problem at the University of Florida will never be solved. Already people are complaining about lack of parking for baseball, lack of parking for softball. They build these big places uh, for a lot of people to sit, but they don't build any place for the cars to go that bring them there. And of course, Florida field is old. Let's just face it. There are no railings anywhere in that place. And um, there are really no creature comfort chairs there like the modern places have, which they're going to have to have if they want to get people to really finally sign on to coming to these games. So they're planning, and I hear tell in the next year or two, to redo that stadium. And it will mean eliminating some seats and knocking it down from 90 plus uh, some change down to maybe 80 or maybe even less 78. And that'll be really interesting to see how that comes off. Nyland Stadium is 100,000 people. So all this is, you know, keeping up with the Joneses, if you will, in the athletic world. And you've got to have this to attract and keep the players. Now, one little known fact here, which I think is so interesting, is we've got a college receiver here that hasn't played much with the new coach from kids from Buholtz, and he's pretty good. He's a wide receiver. He's got a brother who was going to come here and follow him. Well, that brother has decommitted, as they're willing and able to do now, the University of Florida, and is going to Mississippi State. And when I tell you the name of the person who recruited him to Mississippi State, it should ring a bell. It is Steve Spurrier Jr., who coaches the wideouts at Mississippi State. Isn't that interesting? We have Steve Spurrier this and Steve Spurrier that here, from beer to stadiums to fields to everything else under the sun, restaurants. But Steve Spurrier Jr. doesn't work for the University of Florida. He works actually against the University of Florida, as evidenced by this transfer, the commitment of a player to Florida, a local high school player going to Mississippi State, recruited by Steve Spurrier Jr. Uh, you know, it is... Um, it is really strange what loyalty means or doesn't mean. Uh, to a lot of people, loyalty is the ultimate kind of standard. I know it is for Steve Sr. Um, you know, people who stay with you, you remember them. People who um, don't have to necessarily rubber stamp what you think, but they're there to be with you and um, thick or thin, that sort of thing. And that's always been a premium, you would think. We teach it in the sport itself, loyalty to teammates, uh, loyalty to the school, uh, da, da, da. But really, all of that is kaput. 
if you look closely, there's no loyalty to the school. The school doesn't mean much to the player other than the fact that that's the very best place to go to promote yourself and also have a chance at being happy because winning is about happiness, then you go. And if you don't, you go somewhere else. It doesn't really matter what school it is. It's the coaches and um, the support you think you'll get. Now, when you examine this in terms of teaching, it's nothing really different. Uh, John Crow Ransom was the finest teacher of literature probably the nation's ever had. John Crow Ransom was at Vanderbilt. The great students went to Vanderbilt, not because they cared about Vanderbilt. They cared about being in John Crow Ransom's classroom. And Peter Taylor uh, uh, was just one to name uh, just many. Uh, Lowell, Robert Lowell, just really guys who were great students and great writers later wanted to study with John Crow Ransom. Well, John Crow Ransom kind of became disenchanted with Vanderbilt when Vanderbilt began to be run the modern way. And the modern way is functioned by committee. Committees are hopeless examples of get nothing done. We've heard Ted Yoho talk about it and DC, how everything gets stuck in a committee doesn't get out of a committee. The committee chairs become the power. Uh, you don't elect them. Uh, this, that, one, and another. Vanderbilt began to be run, as many institutions are, by committee. John Crow Ransom left. He went to Kenya, Kenyon, a college in Ohio, where he started the Kenyan Review. Well, when he went, all of his students dropped out of Vanderbilt and went to this little college in Ohio. They didn't necessarily need the college. They needed John Crow Ransom. Now, I think we've got a couple of players here that follow this current coach out of Louisiana. I think one of the ways you can judge the quality of a teacher is that by how many people will go with him, notwithstanding where he is. When Steve Spurrier went to South Carolina, which was up until his arrival, Death Valley, not Clemson. That's Death Valley, really Clemson. But, you know, a no place for football. Steve turned it into a someplace for football. Obviously, people wanted to play for him. Quarterbacks especially. He liked his creativity, his courage, uh, all that sort of business. Well, that's basically a way you can evaluate quality teachers and quality coaches are quality teachers. And here I thought was rather interesting. We have a young man whose brother is on the team. He's not playing much. He played quite a bit last year and played pretty well. That says, uh-uh, no, no. I'm going to go where if I can't get Steve Spurrier, maybe I can get Steve Spurrier Jr. So that was something I wanted to report on along with the uh, $100,000 fine, if you will, of, uh, of the SEC league against uh, Tennessee. 
The title, title of today's show, good morning, Lord. The title of today's show is The Mask Commission. I, I, I don't, I, I've run out of fingers and toes of things to say bad about the city of Gainesville. I've traveled through it, I had to travel through it yesterday. And I just found myself so relieved that I didn't live there. Um, I, I just I just found it kind of uncomfortable. And the streets were narrow, roads were bumpy. Um, I, I don't know. It's just it's just it's kind of you know the two things that government should do law and order and infrastructure. And they do neither. They do neither. They do these ideology things. Okay, if you take a look, and I didn't ask production to put on the Channel 20 image, but if you take a look at the Gainesville City Commission last night when they voted to do in single-family neighborhoods, um, and by the way, Minneapolis has done that, and I'm going to report on Minneapolis later in the show, and it's going to be very predictable that Minneapolis would be having these problems. So when they voted, every single commissioner on the dais, this was pointed out to me by kind of a neutral observer. There's my little uh, squirrely thing moving. Anyway, every single commissioner on the dais, except one, Cynthia Chestnut, had a mask on. You know what kind of mask I'm talking about? The mask, the COVID mask, the dreaded COVID mask. Now, I think you are aware of the fact that the COVID mask has become, for many, a symbol, a political symbol. If you're a COVID mask wearer, in this signal, you are liberal. Well, how, how does that work? When you examine a little more closely, how does that work? Is there any logic to the conclusion, prima facie, ironically, on the face, that a mask on the face means a person is a liberal? Well, what does a liberal support? Top-down decrees, decrees from government, not from a constitutional republic, but from the government, whoever, whatever bureaucrat is giving the orders. I suppose that gives some logical understanding to the assumption, prima facie, that the person wearing the mask is a liberal and endorses government heavy-handedness. Well, it certainly is the case, is it not, that the decree thou shalt be able to build anything you want in any neighborhood you want, 
is a government decree by liberals. Now, one of the characteristics about liberals is they don't own anything. They don't invest anything. They live from the, on the, from the government. They get their money from the government. They work for the government. So I thought it was rather observant of the Ward Scott Files research team member who alerted me to that fact this morning and said, did you call me? And said, did you notice that the commissioners on the dais will all with the exception of Cynthia Chestnut are wearing a mask? So then I ran the tape of Poe and his decree, thou shalt follow me and obey me. I don't care what you think is basically what he's saying. And he's saying it all from behind a mask. I mean, it, 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 really, it really speaks for itself, does it not? He's saying it all from behind a mask. And therefore, he is a government heavy-handed believer. The people be damned. And when you listen to him, I don't know, maybe at the break, I'll try to pick it up and let you see it. You can see it if you just go out to... Channel 20 and take a look at it. There it is. Uh, if you listen to him, he's got apples mixed with oranges. He said the reason he's voting for any kind of accommodation, living accommodation to be built anywhere is because he thinks people ought to be able to live anywhere. What that really is code for, if you think about it is he wants to put affordable housing in single member neighborhoods. He doesn't call it affordable housing. He says he thinks people ought to be able to live wherever they want to. Well, sure they can if they have the money. The realtor is morally and legally bound to rent or to sell to he or she who has the money. It doesn't take another act of government. If somebody with the money wants to buy a house in a neighborhood, it matters not. So why do you need and I don't think Poe could think very clearly. I've never thought the guy can think clearly because his mind is muddled with all this ideology, very borderline cerebral capacity. He's up there telling everybody what to do. And then you've got the very mean-spirited communist commissioner who actually threatens people, gives them the international fighter pilot salute, which is the bird, uh, talks down to them as mean as a mean person telling them don't go bother and find out where I live because you ain't going to intimidate me that sort of thing if that's true what I read which I'm sure is true because that's her nature 
I don't know where she came from, but you know, she's not one of us, so to speak. She's not lived in this community. And then you have the oddball, Adrian Hayes Santos, who really doesn't, he, he, you shouldn't have to live anywhere. He doesn't live anywhere except where he puts his head down. He has no ties, economic ties of any substance to the community, but he's going to tell everybody else what to do. They're going to tell everybody else what to do. This is the mask commission. The mass commission hiding and speaking from behind what I now see as not just the COVID, the dreaded COVID mask, but the government mask. So I think there might be something to this. When you see somebody now, after either herd immunity or inoculations or whatever you want to be comfortable with, the COVID is to the point where even the doctor's offices don't require, well, the ones that I know, there might be someone who knows, you know, the mass. And yet the commission clings to this symbol of government authority and supreme knowledge. I enter that into the record here of our conversations because I invite you to, of course, always dis dispute it or um, modify it or think about it. But it seems oddly associated with their arrogance, which they get from their government position. And rather than be a listener and a facilitator and a compromiser, they're a bludgeoner. Now, if you think back, people ask me repeatedly, where did this start? I believe it started when P. Green underhand fired Mike Kurtz. Mike Kurtz was the brightest, many people's opinion, best GRU head, head man we've had. I attended his seminar, if you will, wherein he said, we have a perfectly sound utility and gave all the down and distance stats and data. And I knew right then he was going to get fired because he did not buy into the pea green underhand led biomass endeavor. 
which Hungary and Joe, when we were back on the radio, used to call in and say, why don't they just turn it into a big brewery? Not a bad idea. So, we took a perfectly good performing utility and for an ideological reason, led by an ideologue who was about as arrogant administrator as you could possibly find in the history of this city. Fired the guy, swapped out the utility that functioned and bought a boondoggle. And ever since then, and that is one thing I think it really hurt the city. The other thing is when the charter kicked over to seven's commissioners. And I've researched that and I know who the guys were that stupidly put that in the charter. Should have remained five. And when it kicked over to seven, that really was the dagger that shut down all reasonable seems thereafter conversations. Now we have a city that defunds the cops, that doesn't fix whatever city roads, that uh, doesn't understand the difference between affordable housing and private ownership, private property, doesn't respect private. Fundamentally, this is why it's a communist commission. They do not respect private property rights, period. They hold private property rights in disdain because they think it's racial. They think that the reason a minority doesn't live next to you in your neighborhood is because you can't stand them racially when there's nothing to keep anybody from living anywhere who can afford it. And ironically, they're going to find out that they themselves have put into motion factors that are going to make it even more and more difficult to afford to own anything to live in. The rents in this town, I've been told this by people who are in the business, are out of sight. And they're going to go higher. What do they do? They go ahead and burden the owner with more and more legal necessities in order to do business. Most of these legal necessities are fundamentally aimed at affecting climate change. Climate change has evolved, as we know, from save the earth, save the planet, global warming. None of those seem to quite stir the pot. So finally, they have arrived at climate change. Who can dispute climate change? Indeed, the climate is getting ready to change today. Now, I suppose you could go all the way out and say, oh, wow. Here's a, here's a headline I'm looking at. October heat shatters records across the parched Pacific Northwest. 
If I were a climate change believer, I would immediately seize upon the opportunity to say that's because of global warming, which is because of man, which is because of economic success, which is a result of racial discrimination. Do you see how all these dominoes go together in the mind of the mass commissioner? I was a Lone Ranger fan. Who was that masked man? Hiya, silver. Well, we've got the flip of that. The Lone Ranger came into town to help it out. And then he left. He sought no higher political position. These masked rangers come into town to convert it to their likeness and don't leave and cast a pall over the entire community in perpetuity, the exact opposite of the Lone Ranger. I take credit for that. I think that's rather smart of me to compare. Think about this. It was my little arrow. Think about this. The host the show today, compare the Lone Ranger sewer, to the Gainesville City Commission. What? How did he do that? We'll be right back on the Ward Scott Files. Although the owner of Lewis Oil Company maintains she is 29, Lewis Oil turns 60 years old in June. Chevron would like to recognize the North Florida second-generation family-owned business, celebrating its growth and staying power. Lewis Oil Company maintains significant on-hand supplies, strategically located fuel depots, a delivery fleet, on-site service, fuel card locks, and convenience stores. Lewis Oil Company understands its responsibility in the local economy by providing service and delivery on demand and in crisis. As a first responder for 18 Florida counties and the southeast from Texas to Virginia, we are proud of this rare accomplishment. Lewis Oil delivers. This is Ward Scott, and I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, large enough to serve you, small enough to care. Melvin Law, the only official injury partner of the Florida Gators. The Ward Scott Files Gold sponsors are Lewis Oil Company, Shoot GTR, On the Spot Dry Cleaners, RR Construction, and Style Cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.wardscottfiles.com, and click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Ward Scott Files. And remember, if you like the show, thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. 
may God have mercy on your soul. Or that very much surprises me that you've never been tased. You can't handle the truth! All these poop. A warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Now for the weather brought to you by Lewis Oil. All right, welcome back to Ward Scott Files. Professor Ward Scott here now, the weatherman in the Manly Warthog Command Center, brought to you by our good friend, Wendell Lewis at Lewis Oil. Been in the business since 1962. So uh, thank you very much, Lewis Oil, for supporting the Ward Scott Files. Well, this is the big story right now, I think, that I'll pass along to you. Near freezing temperatures could break records. Records now we're talking in parts of the South. Now, I'm thinking about that, records. And the AccuWeather meteorologist says that the coldest air of the season uh, with near freezing temperatures is headed into the South. It's a result of a powerful disturbance in the central and eastern United States. It's going to bring snow to the Midwest and the Northeast, but farther south will be a real heavy dose of cold air. And this will be unseasonably cold, a little premature in our seasons, and uh, the overlight lows um, could be uh, freezing well, probably not here, of course, but all the way down into Georgia. And indeed, we have our friend here, Ken you saying it's 38 in Atlanta right now. So there's a cold front now that has come down and it arrived all the way to the Gulf Coast, Panhandle, east of Texas. And uh, it will be Canadian air and it will uh, be around for a little while. It will be taking place... Um, on the heels, this is the irony of exceptional heat that has been around the country the last month. I guess if I were a climate change person, I would be saying, aha, I told you so. Now, Nashville, for example, set daily record highs of 99 and 100 on September 20 and 21. And it became the city's latest 100-degree Fahrenheit day on record by a full 10 days. But very soon now, it's going to be exactly the opposite with a winter chill all the way down into Baton Rouge and Jackson, Mississippi, and even to Tallahassee. I'm looking at the map here now. Um, this is going to affect, unfortunately, any late-season crops uh, they're going to significantly be damaged, um, particularly in places. You know, we've just about stuck a fork in the orange crop industry here in Florida, which is very, very sad. An incredible change. Wow. I remember Florida when the overwhelming, wonderful fragrance of orange blossoms just would really be so welcoming, but not now. Um, I'm so, so happy. 
Yes, sir. I'm listening to production right now. What do you think, production? Okay. I'm talking to production here. We're thinking about showing you a video in a minute when I get to this story, which I'm getting to right now. Uh, I was a little bit, uh, I asked the opinion of my production people. They're from a little different uh, generation, of course, than I am. And so I asked them what they thought about it. It is public. So uh, I will show it to you. I believe it comes off of a uh, a, a young lady who was at the scene of this and filmed it. Breitbart picked it up. I saw it and I thought it'd be interesting for you to see. And the reason I'm talking about it, oh, thank you. I think I'm finished with the weather and thank you, Lewis Oil, for providing me with this opportunity in this case to talk about what this cold snap is going to be very shortly. Um, let's talk for a moment about Minneapolis, Minnesota and law and order. You know, I, I got to remind you of some things um, that uh, probably you don't want to be reminded of any, any more than I do. And uh, that is um, the whole situation that happened with the person who um, a jury said was murdered. I'll let you chew on that. But ever since that happened in Minneapolis, the city council, of course, voted in Minneapolis to defund the police department. And we've got the same kind of commission here. In fact, it was pointed out to me by a member of the community research team that Poe uses, I haven't heard it myself, but the research team member has, Poe uses Minneapolis as an example of a place where doing away with single uh, family neighborhoods has successfully been done. Now, put that, put that in, in, your, in your notes. Um, and I have, I'll check this out, but this is a very responsible person who pointed this out to me that in his remarks justifying the elimination of single family zoning, he pointed to Minneapolis as a place where this had been done. And geez, wouldn't we like to be like Minneapolis? Well, in many ways, Gainesville is. There in Minneapolis, the city council voted to defund the police department. And since they did that, approximately 25% of the police force either retired or quit within a year after the riots. Now, therefore, the Minneapolis City Council has backtracked a little bit on cutting the police budget and has allocated money to hire more cops, but it's really too little too late because crime is going crazy in this Democrat-controlled city. In 2021, according to Ethan Letterman, who wrote the article, there were 93 homicides, which is just a few shy of the total killings in 1995. And the name, the city has been nicknamed Murderopolis. Murderopolis. I'd never heard that before. That's pretty interesting. 
So following Floyd's death, okay, they don't call it a murder in this article. They call it a death. <clears throat> following Floyd's death, the average 9-11 response time increased from 10 minutes in April 2020 to currently 16 minutes. And in the north side precinct, the response time averages 17 minutes. And in the Lowry Hill neighborhood, the crime wave became so dire that the residents in that neighborhood raised $210,000 out of their own pockets to pay the city to have more patrols within that area. Let's cut now to what I'm going to show you. This was outside a gay bar called the Gay 90s. The police were slow to show, and when they did, they were met with, with a lack of respect. Can we run that production? said we decided to show that to you and um, uh, this is the video that was taken by a young lady who um, had the presence of mind I guess to stand in the middle there and, and take the pictures um, these are events that happened outside a gay bar called the gay 90s uh, Rebecca Brannon is the one who took the film she's an independent photojournalist uh, she shared this on social media uh, she noted that the content in her video was just a fraction of what she saw and was able to capture that night. Many, much, much more chaos than this. And as you see, the footage begins with um, uh, the assault kicking and all that outside the bar. And it shows the mounted police um, 
and you know the women are all involved in this up to the up to their up to their neck in this thing. Um, this is this is Minneapolis, and um, this is according to Brannon, uh, her observation of a lack of police officers downtown. They, the, the cops have now decided we're just not going down there. Years ago, that was kind of the way policing was done with ghettos. Um, if there was a problem in the ghetto, the cops did not go into the ghetto. They just advised those who were in the fracas to pull whatever was the damaged person to the edge of the ghetto, and they would take care of that person from there on. They would not go into the ghetto. They would not go into the area where behavior like this was going on. They would rim the behavior so that it didn't get out of that area, but they would not go into the area. This is what this made me think of. I'm old enough to have seen this way back when. Um, ironically, it was during segregation. Um, I used to go down to the avenue, Fifth Avenue, during segregation to mom's kitchen and eat midnight, one o'clock, two o'clock. I was generally the only white guy down there. I liked the family, the youngs, felt very comfortable there. I've seen things I saw across the street come out of Red's two spot. A man land in the middle of the street with a knife sticking out of his back and people just walked around it. Cops didn't come in there. Eventually, I suppose that was dealt with. It was just, you know, that was Fifth Avenue. And Fifth Avenue ran all the way from uh, 13th to 6th Street. And, of course, along the way, uh, there was um, uh, not only Mom's Kitchen, but there was Sarah's down there where great music was played. And um, it, was, it, was, um, it, was the, it was the area. But it wasn't policed. Um, it was left alone to be on its own and behave and, and, and approve of and disapprove of the behavior that was accepted in that area. It kind of reminds me of what has happened now, ironically, during integration. I mean, everything's integrated, except the police, by necessity, have taken the position, hey, this isn't our problem. This is these people's problem. They, they, they're doing this. They're, they're condoning it. They're, I mean, we have a gay bar. We have um, a mixed racial group. We have late at night. We have a whole culture that has already been judged and juried as exonerated from any kind of responsibility for their behavior. Boy, that was a great phrase I just coined off the top of my head. Wow. Wow, that was impressive word. So um, here we are. Um, we're, we're in a situation where this lady who has taken this independent film says it was completely chaotic. And um, she says um, she's been down there when there were shootings. And uh, even the cold, it was very cold this night. She said it didn't even deter this behavior. She said the police were scarce. Uh, the situation was very volatile. And she tried to keep her distance. Um, 
So to summarize, there have been hundreds of cops who have left the Minneapolis Murderapolis Police Department after the city became ground zero. This city is ground zero for the nationwide Black Lives Matter riots that followed the death, notice called death, of George Floyd in 2020. Now, I think this had a a factor in the changing of the guard of the sheriffs here locally. Sadie Darnell, a sheriff at the time, walked in the Black Lives Matter parade as the sheriff with a group that hated cops. Huh? Coach Mullen marched with his team in that parade. Where is the leadership? Where is the leadership? I don't know what else to say. Now, Governor DeSantis has come out in a couple of speeches and addressed this issue. In particular, he is dismayed, as Sheriff Grady Judd was when we showed that to you, with the Parkland shooter sentencing. And there is a post by our investigator that the killer to this day, are you ready for this? Remains on the voter roll in Broward County. Do you, do you know this? So DeSantis has said, I'm sorry when you murder 17 people in cold blood, the only appropriate punishment is capital punishment. That should have been a death sentence. So he says, we have got to fix it so that one holdout can't negate the opinion of the rest of the people on the jury. And he is going to lead the charge to change this system legislatively. That's pretty interesting. One holdout, and as he alludes to, who knows what kind of holdout we're talking about here, his phrase, who knows what was going on back there. One holdout negates the opinion of the other jury members. He said the legislature has got to change that. And what he's saying, what he's talking about, is you shouldn't have to have unanimous. Because all it takes is one person 
DeSantis has already said, and the reason I spend a little bit of time with him now, but we have got a few minutes left, is that this guy has made no secret of the fact that he is fighting leftist ideology and their woke agenda. And in his speech in the villages, I'm going to quote him. It's not limited to the halls of Congress or people getting elected to various levels of government. You obviously see it there in different parts of the country in particular, but you now have corporations that have been captured by this. He said, warning that they are trying to impose the woke agenda through economic means that they could not achieve through political means or win at the ballot box. You know, this guy barely, barely became the governor. And you know, we're not even finished learning about all the behavior of Gillum. I've got a story here that I haven't gotten around to that, uh, you know, you just, uh, you just can't believe, you just can't believe this guy, how bad this guy was. Came within a, just a, a whisker of being your governor. Can you imagine? Now, furthermore, DeSantis said that the leftist ideology is trying to stifle dissent. They're trying to impose an orthodoxy on this country. And in the state of Florida, you know, I've had to be the one standing out there and taking the arrows from the media, from the left, from some of the big corporations. But you know, that's my job. I let them shoot at me so they don't get you. Boy, do I ever identify with that. You know, I'm persona non grata, really, among advertisers, a lot of them. They're so afraid of the left. I'll go ahead and talk to you about it on the air. So afraid. Um, they, 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 they don't even donate. But they want to watch. They want to learn. They want to call me up and find out what I think and this and that but they don't want anybody to know it. That's okay. That's what I'm here for. This is kind of a gift to the community. We pay the expenses and that's about it. And when I move along, why this will be a part of the historical, I guess, moment in the community's conversations. But we've got DeSantis for a while. And this guy understands when he says a leader must be right on the issues. And when he's right on the issues, he understands that the stakes are high. But there's no substitute for courage. That's what I see is missing. That's why we don't have any real leaders. He, he's, he's a real leader. We don't have any real voters. We don't have anybody with courage. 
there's a lot of very comfortable people who are bemused by things, but are sort of insulated from the fits and starts of a broken system. I suppose that's the way it's always going to be. But there's a lot at stake here. There is a lot at stake here. You've got the smearing by the media. You've got the knuckling under by the corporations. You've got the corruption of the school systems. I mean, just look at this recent clamor against a guy who they claim is political and they're the ones that are political. They come in and com complain that he's not their political. If this presidential candidate for UF had come in endorsing LGBTQWXYZ, endorsing diversity and inclusion, do you think they would be clamoring against him? Do you think the faculty would be clamoring against him? No, they're only for what they want. They're not for free and open discussion and examination and research and accountability. There are not very many people around who, who stand up to this, who even know what they're talking about when they do stand up. Either they're lazy intellectually or they have something they'd rather do that's more important to them, that's more self-satisfying and in their particular interests. So there are some people fighting the battle. We'll see in a little bit how it turns out. I think that's all I got time for today. I had a couple other things I was going to get into with you. Um, probably a save them for you. Pretty interesting stuff I've been researching. Um, so we'll see uh, if I get around to it. But uh, we're at 9.58, and that's right at the button for the show. Endorse us and follow us on Rumble. That helps us beat back YouTube. It helps us fight the tech censorship. Do you understand? It's not very difficult for you to do. Have a great day. Warthog Command Center out.